Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, you know I had a chance to go to Maine this summer. I went you up did. to Camden, Maine. My wife and I, we had a great trip. Absolutely. I was jealous. It was fun. We flew into Boston, stayed with my old law school roommate in Hull, Massachusetts, and then drove up to Maine. And, uh, I, you know, I just had an incredibly great time in Maine. It was my first trip to the Maine coast. Loved it. You did. You did. And you came back chock full of some really excellent stories. And as I recall, it was the middle of summer and it was perfect. hot as tarnation it was, down here in Austin, Texas. It Headquarters. Was, it came ch- came back chock full of lobster, too. You it, did. Yes, it was absolutely fun. And um, so, you know, it's one of the things that we've been talking about on the podcast, I think, going back to the first year, two years ago. Yeah. And uh, we're going to do a show about Maine and lobsters and an update with one of the best people we can talk to uh, who's been following this issue very closely, David Abel, the award-winning reporter with the Boston Globe documentary filmmaker, an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, reporter on coastal issues in America and in the, uh, in the Northeast particularly. And I'm always just jazzed to get a chance to talk to David Abel and get an update. It is. It's going to be a real jam-packed show. We've got a lot to talk about. And just before we get into it, I just want to go back and say that the main coast is really, there are certain, you know, particular pieces of American shoreline that we really like, we're fascinated by because we can see the dynamics shaping up. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been listening for a long time, you can, you know that we have done shows on lobster shell disease the warming waters of the Gulf of Maine. Uh, we have done several shows with David, uh, today's guest. Yeah. And um, so this is a an ongoing dialogue as we watch uh, one of the more dynamic changes in coastline uh, in, in, in terms of the people, the social dynamics along that shoreline, uh, blended, of course, with the physical changes that are happening there, the changes in the fisheries, the changes in the lobsters, the changes the with economic implications, big, big, and the pol- and the political implications too. Right in a on. very interesting state, you think about it. Maine is an interesting political state, not not the normal, uh, yeah, uh, thing. But uh, so it's going to be a great show today, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, before we get into it, we will first have a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by. LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, David Abel, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast to talk about one of our favorite issues, the transformation of the uh, Northeast coast by climate change and the implications for fishermen and lobstermen and uh, uh, just an amazing place to, to, to keep tabs on. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, and uh, so happy to be back with you guys. Well, David, uh, you know, as as a reporter on the Boston Globe, uh, you guys have been following this issue. I think the best coverage in America on on the lobster uh, issue is coming out of the Boston Globe, the Globe Spotlight series 
The Lobster Trap is beautifully done. An outstanding reporter uh, working on that story in, uh, uh, in, 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 I guess, in partnership with the Portland Press uh, as well. Uh, tell us about, about the Spotlight series and what you guys have been focusing attention on from a, from a journalistic standpoint lately. Yeah, um, thank you, and I'm so glad you uh, were you guys were able to uh, experience the beauty of uh, the rugged Maine coastline. It is like no other place, and uh, um, I am uh, I live in Boston, but love to be up there as much as I can. Uh, uh, and uh, our uh, my colleagues spent a good amount of time, and I did along the coast. I was actually um, reporting in Nova Scotia. And in Connecticut for this uh, series of stories that our spotlight team did, and some of my colleagues spent a good amount of time on an island called Vinyl Haven uh, off the coast of Central Maine, and um, and it was just about it, it was a long um, series of stories about how ultimately climate change is affecting our waters here in the Gulf of Maine, and uh, particularly. Um, accelerating this conflict between the um, the fishing industry and mainly the lobster industry uh, and the conservation community and our efforts to protect uh, um, particularly North Atlantic right whales and other uh, other whales uh, which are increasingly in conflict with the lobster industry but this was a long month a months-long process in which we spent time with fishermen um, in uh, in Maine, in Connecticut, and in Nova Scotia, uh, to really get a sense of what they're experiencing and how government regulations are trying to adapt to uh, the changes that are happening in the ecosystem and how uh, they're affecting the fishery and they're affecting other wildlife and uh, how we're all going to sort of live together to try to balance vital conservation and co- uh, commercial interests. Well, I love that there is at least uh, someone talking about balancing these interests. I'm interested, David, you've you've been embedded along the main coast now for years, and you have a rapport uh, with basically everyone around there. <laughs> that might be a stretch, but you 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 have deep relationships. Give us a vibe check. Uh, how are things now? Uh, and and have they changed in any particular way uh, over the past few years? Any trends you're seeing? In one word, I think uh, the mood is tense, uh, and that tension has been ratcheting up for years now. And uh, it was sort of on a simmer uh, for a few years as the conservation community and the federal government worked with the lobster industry to try to find some reasonable common ground that wouldn't uh, be too hard on uh, the industry um, to try to find ways to uh, protect North Atlantic right whales, which are among the most endangered species on the planet. Um, their population just in the last few years declined from, I think the number was 211, uh, I'm sorry, 411 um, when I started working on a, on a, my last film, Entangled, which was all about the, these issues. Um, in 2019, when I started making that film, the projected, the estimated population was 411 North Atlantic right whales. Just uh, this past fall, uh, scientists estimated that the population is now closer to about 335. Wow. Um, and so there's been a something like a 30% decline in their population with fewer than 100 
breeding females left. And so there, th this population is in dire straits. And the, the leading cause of, of death is entanglement in the um, fishing lines, known as vertical buoy lines in the lobster industry, the, the lines that go from buoys at the surface to the traps on the sea floor. And uh, because this has been such a, such a significant problem, the federal government in the last few years has tried to find solutions and they convened um, uh, a, a group of stakeholders a few years ago um, uh, through the Endangered Species Act or the Marine Mammal Protection Act um, to try to find solutions that everybody could live with. And uh, it seemed in the beginning that, that there, was, there was a consensus and, um, and that everybody was sort of on the same page and um, and then uh, the lobstermen essentially re rebelled, and the state, and not just lobstermen, but their congressional um, and state representatives have basically been saying hell no uh, uh, to any efforts um, by the federal government to try to protect these whales uh, at, at as a uh, reflection of their concerns about how it will affect this. Uh, 1.5 billion dollar economic um, uh, impact on Maine. I'm um, sorry that that 1.5 billion dollars is reflection of what the uh, lobster industry means to Maine and its economy. And so the concern is that efforts to try to uh, essentially reduce the impact of the industry on the whales could have a dire uh, dire impact on this vital industry for the state. And so they've been fighting it and that has caused all kinds of tension. And, and I could keep talking about this, but well, I, I, you know, let's, I, I thank you very much for the, the right whale population update. As I recall, uh, when we first started covering this issue and talking to you a few years back, we were in the neighborhood of 400 now less, fewer than 300. Those were the lobster war days. Those are the lobster war days, yeah, down now to yeah. 335. This is a serious population uh, drop uh, uh, for this population of critically endangered whales, fewer than 100 breeding females, as you've mentioned. And during the same period, I just want to throw on the record for the listeners out there that if you look at lobster harvest values or uh, uh, numbers over the last 10 years. They were in excess of 100 million pounds of lobsters harvested for nine years until 2020, when the number uh, total number was 119 million pounds, 96 million pounds of that coming out of Maine. I mean, one of the things I'm curious about, David, is you're talking about the tension and the conflict between the industry. We know it is the most lucrative fishery in the United States, the Maine lobster, in terms of value, uh, valuation. Um, but while all of the complaining is going on, all of the fighting going on over regulation, the industry is still in its peak performance in terms of economic value and harvest. And one of the things I'm watching from down here in Texas, I am curious about the level of, of, of tension and, and the real breakdown in the relationship between National Marine Fisheries and the lobster community and the state of Maine. Um, it just seems like it, there was a point where there was almost a consensus that there was almost a way to move forward, and now it's broken down. Enlighten us. What happened? Because the guys are still making a lot of money. 
Yeah, these are these are really good questions and something I've uh, tried to understand as well. So uh, a few years ago, I was at this meeting um, that I was just talking about uh, of this group called the the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team, which is which brings together fishermen and state officials and federal officials and scientists uh, and conservation groups all to sort of try to hash out, uh, you know, how to solve a problem, a difficult problem like balancing the conservation and commercial in- interests of the lobster industry and the and the uh, and uh, the the health of these whales and. It seemed, you know, that that it was, you know, the height of democracy in some ways, watching all of these people from with different interests come together. And um, and they all sort of came. There was not just a consensus. It was near unanimity. I think uh, when they finally came up with a plan, uh, all but one. And it was uh, just a um, uh, someone from the conservation community who thought that the 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 proposal didn't go far enough. Um, they all but one of 60 members of this team agreed uh, to take action, and that included the lobster industry. But then uh, they they walked away from the uh, the agreement that they that they signed on to. And some people suggest have suggested to me that that was just kind of a dilatory tactic, um, and it was a political tactic in the sense that. Uh, rather than trying to fight uh, in a um, direct way, they would they would sort of co-opt the system and delay it, and and essentially s- pretend as if that they were they were working with the federal government and uh, and at the same time um, trying to undermine uh, those efforts um, through legal and political tactics, and that succeeded for. A couple of years into the very end of the Trump administration, when uh, a federal judge um, finally finally uh, pushed the uh, federal government to take action uh, and stop uh, delaying the implementation of these protections, and then finally, and and this is just the slow way our federal government works. Uh, after uh, more than two years after the. Uh, there was a crisis declared in the right whale um, uh, um, conservation by by the federal government and by those trying to protect right whales, saying that there needed to be action urgently to protect this species from extinction. Uh, more than two years later, the federal government finally um, enacted these uh, measures to try to protect the whales and. Um, and I was actually, after covering this very closely uh, in the place that you were describing at the top of the show on a small island just off the coast of the Maine, overlooking uh, hundreds of, of colorful lobster traps or their buoys, and, uh, and learned, you know, after years of covering this, that the federal government finally announced their plan. And um, it was a moving moment for me um, and, of course, for a lot of people all all throughout Maine uh, who have moved in, in in different ways. And the movements by those people led to lawsuits, uh, lawsuits that um, that now the state of Maine has joined to try to block action by the federal government to uh, impose restrictions on the lobster industry's um, uh, uh, activities. And those those rules included 
something like a thousand square mile closure that goes from October uh, through, I believe, uh, um, uh, January um, in a portion of uh, a thousand square mile area off of the central uh, coast of Maine. Uh, it includes all kinds of uh, um, uh, uh, marking requirements for their, for their gear uh, and requires that they reduce the number of buoy lines that they, that they use. Um, and ultimately, um, the hope is that, uh, and the federal government hasn't yet um, required this, but they have intimated that uh, by the end of the decade, uh, they might ban vertical buoy lines, essentially uh, requiring the industry to adapt to new t kinds of fishing, such as ropeless fishing, which we've talked about in the past, mm -hmm. uh, that would allow for uh, them to continue to fish, but not use the, the vertical buoy lines that entangle whales and so, other marine mammals. So <clears throat> you reference this uh, judge's decision and uh, being there, and I, in my mind, I just picture a cue ball slamming into a neatly organized pyramid of uh, billiard balls, just push, and they all shoot off in different directions, and we're kind of off now because it seems that that uh, this really does get to the core of the matter, which is that after all of these years and all of this data collected, and ladies and gentlemen, we have done so many shows. Uh, about uh, this topic and the science going into it, but uh, what what I can't escape is the psyche of the lob of the fishing community and the lobstering community specifically. And um, uh, you actually wrote a piece uh, this year, very recently, about uh, I guess last year, about the last lobsterman in Connecticut. And uh, I say this because, you know, lobstering is not expanding these days. It's contracting. <laughs> it's been contracting for some time. And uh, I have always seen a psychological break here as this industry comes to, I don't want to say it comes to an end, Peter, but my Lord, it's changing. Yeah. It's the fishery is changing and it has been changing for years and it, and it has, it is coming to an end in Connecticut, you know? And, uh, I just wonder, like, the psychological element here for the lobsterman is to what? Hang on? Is it is it a little confederacy fishery that's just going to hang on as long as they can, uh, you know, to the last man? I mean, politically, well, I can't imagine that working in Maine. Go ahead. Well, there's a huge, huge amount of money at stake for these guys. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, they, they have... Uh, every reason to not let go, um, and they have a lot. In, a lot of these folks have a lot invested in this fishery. They have mortgages on boats, and uh, and you know, taken uh, loans against their their homes uh, to finance their ability to to fish. And um, and so they're th and this is not just for them, but their kids and. Their grandkids. Uh, so there's a whole culture, and and uh, I don't think anybody wants to see that go away. It's just a question of whether it will adapt and 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 how it's going to change as the climate changes. And as you noted, this is already taking place. And so there used to be um, a really vibrant uh, lobster fisheries in southern the southern portion of uh, New England uh, off the coast of. Um, of Connecticut, Long Island Sound, there used to be 
a fishery that was worth tens of millions of dollars a year. And, um, and the story I wrote uh, uh, that was in the paper a, a few weeks ago was about the last full-time lobsterman of Connecticut and how sad it was to go fishing with him, to see him pull trap after trap of no lobsters. I think in, in an entire day I spent with him on the water, if I recall, he caught something like 16 lobsters, which is, is crazy. Um, um, and, you know, the concern is that that what's happening there is going to is going to start spreading up the coast. And we've already seen um, the lobster catch decline in the southern portion uh, of Maine uh, and in Rhode Island and, and elsewhere. Um, uh, but it, it, and we're also seeing sort of the march of lobsters move up further to the north. And I also, in the course of reporting this series for the Globe Spotlight team, spent a week in uh, Nova Scotia, where now the, um, the lobster population has boomed. And so they are seeing the flip side of what uh, the folks in Connecticut have experienced, which is they are seeing a, a, a huge surge in their lobster catch. And that's led to all kinds of other different conflicts um, including a, a, a veritable lobster war of their own up there between commercial lobstermen and indigenous lobstermen. And it used to be that the commercial lobstermen there in Nova Scotia didn't really worry too much about the, the indigenous uh, lobster fishery. Um, but in, in the last year, in the last couple of years, the indigenous fishermen there um, have been using their so-called treaty rights to fish out of the traditional government-sanctioned um, uh, uh, season for for lobster fishing in Canada, which led to mm-hmm. all kinds of violence and protests and two lobster pounds by uh, owned by the indigenous fishermen being burned down, their their boats set adrift, um, uh, their lobster pots being um, being cut and sabotage so so we're seeing all kinds of different ways that climate change is in some ways exacerbating uh the way people live all along the coast from southern new england up to atlantic canada man that is fascinating and i think that's the right focus david is what we're witnessing here is a change in management a change in the economics the change in the fishery driven by climate and our capacity to adapt and understand and adjust, and it's not going smoothly so far. When you're talking about the conflict between the indigenous lobstermen and the commercial lobstermen in Nova Scotia, it is the battle over the new value, the fact that this is going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars in a region that is, which 10 years ago was not one of the main lobstering harvest areas. Um, I want to know, I, I really want to know this you know, when I think about, I have a hard time not thinking that the lobster community in Maine understands what it meant uh, to to read the story of the last lobsterman in Connecticut. As Tyler says, this fishery is changing. There is an existential threat as the migrant, as the as the population of lobster shifts northward. And yet we see the Maine lobstermen and the, the state of Maine sort of directing their fire at the federal government as the threat and the problem to their existence, rather than 
opening their minds to the conflict that is happening over climate change, which is at, which is the driving force that's going to affect their long-term livelihood. Do you, is there just something about it's better to beat up on the federal government than to take seriously the issues they're facing in terms of climate and right whale reduction? I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a really good way of sort of crystallizing the issue. I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot of money being spent on these lawsuits, uh, from, not just the, the the state, but from uh, from uh, fishermen and their their uh, association, the Maine Lobstermen's Association and the Maine Lobstering Union, they're they're all you know um, you know raising money to and, and a lot of money to fight uh, uh, and direct their fire at the federal government, and there's a lot of political capital also being invested in you know the big bad uh, ogre of the federal government telling the little you know um uh businessman uh known as the lobster the lo- a lobsterman what what to do and how to live his or her life when really all that all that money could be used to try to transition the fishery to to new technology that has already been tested and is being tested and has proven that it is really up to the task. And if we can, you know, bring to bear all of this political capital and financial uh, uh, capital to help this industry make the transition to a whale safe um, uh, industry, then, then, then both can live in some harmony. Um, I think that's the hope. And that is uh, where things uh, appear to be heading. Although, you know, if a new administration comes into power, uh, that that could scramble things. But it seems like the um, previous uh, legal decisions are pushing the federal government, will have and will push the federal government into uh, being required to uh, uh, press the industry to take greater actions to protect whales. And that ultimately means reducing the amount of vertical lines in the water column. Um, and that requires a fundamental change in the way this fishery operates. No doubt about it. And I do have to say, I, I really wish that we lived in a country where uh, we could just buy the feds i'm talking to you the feds could just give a bunch of these ropeless fishing technology units to the fishermen just just buy it it for them yeah just fund it yeah just give this gear out i mean if, if that saves the whale if that's what it takes if that's the direction we're going let's write that check and do it i mean it is it is just not worth the political fight in the direction that this is going that is my personal opinion well, I would just add that one of the things uh, that's already happening and, and a reflection of the tension that I mentioned is that the federal government and conservation groups have offered to provide free uh, ropeless fishing gear to, uh, to have lobstermen in Maine, in particular, test the gear out. And one of the provisions of the new rules that the government, federal government announced uh, in protecting the whales this summer was that the closure, the new closure that they 
required allows for fishermen uh, to test. Uh, it allows fishermen using ropeless gear to fish there. So they have really? now an incentive. But because there has been so much stigma uh, uh, about this. Um, it's hard at the dock. Uh, yeah, going out there. You know, that sucks, but though. Nobody's Damn signing it. up, right? Come on, it's, I mean, it's come almost on. like the vaccine or something. It's like no, you know, it is. It's uh, the culture like, war. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's becoming like a culture war. That concerns me a lot, David. Because, and I'll, I'll say for the listeners out there, if you're if you can and you have access to a computer while you're listening to this show, please Google up the Atlantic Large Whale Take Reduction Team. That's the name of the federal entity. Uh, this stakeholder organizational structure that's trying to contend with this issue and just take a look at the number of people who have been working for years to come up with a solution. My concern, David, is if we this was a, a, a tremendous investment that the government, that the, that the federal uh, NOAA folks and NIMFS had made in trying to come up with a collaborative solution, fact based approach over the last you know many years. And it's this the fact that it has broken down and descended into warfare. Uh, and you're right, the 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 main lobster the, the lobstermen are trying to raise ten million dollars for legal fees to fight the federal government. The investment that was being made in this system of responsible management has fallen apart, and it, it concerns me greatly. Um, there's enough money here. There's enough of a viable industry. There is an alternative with ropeless gear. And yet it's falling apart. And I, and I just doesn't give me hope that as climate issues and fisheries issues arise in other parts of the country, that we've got the capacity to adapt and adjust sensibly, because it looks like there's a solution on the table, but we can't get to it. Now it's open warfare and it's pissing me off. I mean, there's 300, yeah. there's 335 of these it whales should. while we're arguing that shit's going bad. Right, right. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and, and there are lots of groups that are trying to, uh, to you know, help square the circle, so to speak, by offering you know fishermen to test this gear and working with them to try to make it right. And and we are seeing that to some extent uh, a more collaborative uh, relationship here uh, uh, in in Cape Cod Bay, which is also which is which preceded Maine in having a closure to protect right whales for uh, several months a year in the winter months. And, um, and there are a, a number of lobstermen here who, are, who have signed up and are trying to and have learned how to use the gear. Um, and, and the gear has you know, got some technical issues and there, it's not, and there are some political issues and, and some gear conflicts between different fisheries like you know, uh, without buoys in the water, it's hard for other fisheries to know where the lobster traps are. So you have a dragger that might be, you know, uh, um, uh, scraping the, the, the sea floor for, for ground fish. And, uh, and, you know, they don't uh, want to run across, run afoul uh, lobster traps that they can't see. And so having some kind of interoperability or, you know, uh, having the ability for different fishermen to be able to see on a chart plotter uh, where where all the gear is 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 you know one of the challenges of making the system work on a large scale. But um, but 
it's, you know, these, all of these things are under discussion and, and the hope is that they'll be worked out in, in the not too distant future. Um, I, 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 I guess it would only be fair. And I, I do want to ask, ask this question, which is have, have the lobstermen proposed any sort of alternative solution that, uh, that in your opinion, or, or is, is backable by, you know, scientists and people on this? I mean, is, are, do, what do you think about that? I mean, do they have a, a leg to stand on? So, so in my last film, um, Entangled, uh, where we, you know, delve pretty deeply into all of these issues, the state of Maine was compelled by the federal government to come up with a plan of its own. And it did, um, uh, it did make some suggestions of where they might reduce the number of buoy lines and, and they allowed for, uh, and they required uh, their gear to be marked in certain ways and they offered to make other changes. But, but the federal government in response to their plan said it just, just didn't do enough to uh, demonstrably and significantly reduce the, the risk uh, or the threat to North Atlantic right whales. And so, they're, uh, so the federal government under the Trump administration rejected their proposal. Hmm. Um, saying it wouldn't go far enough. David, do we know how many lobster lines are? Uh, obviously, the lobster season runs, I think it's from the spring, somewhere around April, comes kind of goes through the year. Uh, it changes the location and things. But do we know anything about how many total numbers of lines? I hear there's millions, but is there any data uh, that could tell us in a season how many lobster trap lines are likely to be? vertically in the water off of me. uh yes and uh my understanding and this comes directly from uh uh from the state of maine their their data is that uh there are uh in the nature of um five million uh throughout the course of a year existing buoy lines um uh in the Gulf of Maine. Wow. It's a big number. A lot of them are near shore at the beginning of the season and not where the whales are, but over the course of the year, there's right. 5 million. Right. You know, one of the things that strikes me in, in, in tracking the issue and the reporting on it is the assertion by some lobstermen group groups that there is no evidence that lobster lines are a contributing factor to the decline in right whale population. That is an incredible insertion to me and, and, and indicates to me the level of breakdown. Real wedge there, because the feds are yeah. arguing that it's directly related. It to- is. And I mean, are you hearing that argument? And how the hell can these guys make this make that argument? Because I think it's absurd. So um, so you hear repeatedly from uh, from lobster men there uh, there trade associations uh, and from their representatives in state and federal government in Maine that that there should not be an imposition of these regulations because there is no evidence that the lobster that the Maine lobster industry is contributing to the mortality or serious injuries of North Atlantic right whales and the fundamental problem with that assertion is that uh, very, very little gear has been attributed to directly linked 
to a specific fishery. Um, and the reasons for that is while we know that for North Atlantic right whales, more than 85% have been, um, have been scarred uh, by entanglement. And we know that a majority of those that have been entangled have been entangled more than once. And we know that the leading cause of death over the last two decades of North Atlantic right whales has been um, entanglement in fishing gear. And, and by the way, uh, other whales like humpback whales uh, and finback whales and, um, and loggerhead turtles, they also get entangled in fishing gear, in uh, particularly vertical buoy lines. So it's not just these whales. The, pr the fundamental problem is that un uh, until the, th the federal regulations just took effect, there was no requirement that, there, um, that, that any state identify their gear. So right. it was indistinguishable, right. a rope that would come from Maine <clears throat> Or from Massachusetts, or from New Brunswick. So no, nobody was able to link a, a lobster pot from you know that that look identical if it comes from off the shores of Cape Cod or off the shores of Nova Scotia. Right. And so, um, so um, you know, everyone was using basically the same kind of gear. Um, now, different fisheries have to mark their gear, uh, and they use different kind of rope, like different colored rope. Um, that will reflect, um, you know, what state uh, their um, th the um, the rope might be coming from, and I and my understanding was something like only of of the rope that has very few of the gear actually is recovered during uh, from entanglements, and of that gear, I think like only four percent of entangled whales have had gear recovered from them and wow. I, I think and and then of that only one percent has been able to be linked to a specific fishery wow. so so the argument that you know the state where 90 percent of the lobster traps and the lobster lines come from uh isn't somehow uh responsible is is um I think in the words of Thank you. many scientists I've interviewed <laughs> over the years, um, unlikely or absurd. Total bullshit would be another way to say it. <laughs> that, that I mean, be... this is what I want the listeners to understand out there, because if you're if you're not from the Northeast and you're not deeply involved in the issue, it gets very complicated if you're trying to follow along in this resource management equation and the, and the drama in this fishery it's like they have plausible deniability that's yeah, what they have on purpose and they're, they're taking and that to mean that they can just that they have no part in it patrice mccarran right. told us this he's the executive director of the maine lobstermen's association in our interview years ago said you know there's no definitive proof and the reason why is because the lobstermen have refused to mark the gear so that it can be attributed to them but the, precisely and and that's the that's the disingenuous part about this and as you say, there's five million uh, lines in the water. This is the major density of lines in the in the right well transit areas. The idea that the main lobstermen have nothing to do with the decline when 80 percent, as you said, of the whale population shows evidence of scarring and multiple scarring episodes of being entangled. I mean, th th this is just nonsense. And, and it 
And I just, well, it's God, I just wish these people. I hear your frustration. I hear your frustration. There's an answer to this. Yeah. Well, I I just, I, you know, I'm going to zoom back out because, because it's obviously behavior that happens when a community has their back against the wall. And, you know, that's why we're studying it. And that's why we're, we're following along with the people of Maine and the whales that come through there. And we are, uh, watching a, a a psychology, I'm going to circle back to that. And um, th- what's what we're seeing as this re- in this reaction is the opposite of harmony. I mean, it is dissonance, almost deliberately, is what you're describing. And um, that's why we're talking about culture war. And this is broader in America. I mean, we see it on the American shoreline, sure, but this is a broader American thing right now. But truly with climate change and with the with the changing climate and with our infrastructure our socioeconomic systems in communities the infrastructure designed to accommodate those things as those things get pressed and stressed if we silo off and f- go and b- build walls around our little you know industries uh we will all hang separately, as uh, whoever that was who said that. I think it was Benjamin Franklin. Was it John Paul Jones? We'll all hang together, or surely we'll all hang separately. What was that? I think it was Benjamin Franklin. Was it? No. I, I think it was Blackbeard. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, this is the point we're making, is this is not the only place where the conflicts of climate change are going to arise in management. This one just has to be a crystalline case, because we have a a... Uh, charismatic megafauna, as as the biologists and the advocates would say, we have a right whale, an amazing creature. We're down to 335. It, it, the The problem is clear. the The economic value. It, there's enough money on the table here that this could be accommodated. There's solutions. My frustration is if we can't make this work here, if we can't make adjustments in this situation where the facts are reasonably clear, I don't know what it says for the future of you know our capacity as you know as as american citizens to contend with the the what climate change is going to demand of us that's, and that's my ultimately you know the the purview of my uh, of of my work and my interest which is you know we are undergoing a a metamorphosis in some ways in terms of how uh, we coexist with our environment things are changing and they're changing rapidly the uh, United Nations uh, a few years ago issued this absolutely astonishing report uh, that, you know, really just, you know, had a big impact on me in which it uh, projected that over uh, the coming decades, by the end of the century, we are on target to lose a million species, one million species. Um, and, um, and these kinds of conflicts between conservation concerns and commercial concerns are going to are going to be growing and and the question i think that someone asked in in my uh last film entangled was if you can't save a great whale right you can't save a species that that you know a lot of people can identify with this charismatic megafauna as you described it uh um what can you save and so, um, yeah. you know, 
well, these, these are the questions. These are existential questions that we're going to have to. We're increasingly going to confront and figure out how to answer. And the thing is, with this particular issue, it's not that it, it's not there. It's not that hard. There, yeah. unlike a lot of things, there is an actual solution here, and uh, and it's a matter of economics, really, and political will. And we subsidize our agricultural industries to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars dollars a year. And it would not take that kind of money to subsidize the transition of the lobster fishery. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, but the one thing that we need in order to transition is is a vision to transition to. And um, David, I, I wanted to talk to you uh, about uh, in your travels up and down the main coast, particularly here in the COVID era and the the era of the the Zoom revolution, people leaving cities and going to beautiful, oftentimes coastal uh, communities to uh, wait out the pandemic, it seems, and and in some cases set down roots and and live there. And I have been hearing about the you know the main coast has been gentrifying. I should say since well before COVID, we've been following it, Peter. But new pressures on the main coast are are definitely real. Uh, but with that, maybe comes a new blend of people, new people, new thinkers, uh, maybe some some new energy. H- have you seen any? Uh, is there a generational divide? Is there is there any spark of? Uh, hey, you know this. We can solve this problem uh, from from a particular quadrant. And and have you encountered that yet? You mean um, you mean people sort of feeling like you know we we can come together and let's not- transition this fishery. Let's I can create a, a a business of I don't know whale watching, or I'm going to get into kelp aquaculture, or whatever the case may be. Are you seeing a turning of the corner of the working waterfront uh, of Maine? Because really, I think what we're talking about with this fishery, obviously, there's the individual livelihoods of the fishermen. And yep. then, and then we have, and and the and the broader economic impact of that. But then there's this this bigger kind of social identity piece of the working waterfront, the the identity of of the waterman in Maine. And I'm wondering if 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 in younger people you see an evolution in what that identity might be, and if and if they're you know I have to imagine they see the facts. I mean, are they evolving and leaning in in maybe a new evolved way? You know, it's hard to speak in general terms uh, because everything from my point of view in terms of conversations is is individual and anecdotal. And I have seen the extremes. I've seen people who uh, are really uh, what you said, leaning in, trying to find solutions and working um, with uh, companies um, and um and the government to try to really solve difficult problems. There's there's this company um, uh, that um, that is that that has uh, operated out of a garage in Plymouth, uh, Massachusetts, um, where they've single-handedly developed this new ropeless system. And they these guys, uh, it's these two guys, and they are just amazing in how they've basically you know, brooked a lot of um, um, really mean-spirited comments and tense, tense 
uh, encounters to try to talk to people, almost evangelize in, you know, for giving this new technology a try. And so there are people and there are some fishermen who are willing to look to the future. And then there is the other group. I don't know if you guys saw the film uh, Don't Look Up uh, yes. on Netflix, uh, but but there's a certain you know um, number of people who fall into that category as well, who they're like, you know what? Uh, I, I, there's a comet coming, but I'm not going to look up. <laughs> right. And you, you could tell me that it's going to, it's going to end the world, but I'm not going to believe you because I don't want to believe you. And it's not in my interest to believe you. And, and, and you know, in some ways Ugh. it's the same people who are saying that about the vaccines, you know, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, and you have you know, people who it's basically, I think comes down to people who are willing to uh, acknowledge a peer reviewed science and those who um, who are unwilling to, um, you know, look at uh, what our best measurements and our best efforts to try to understand the world show us yeah. uh, and just believe what they want to believe. Well, I, what's in their interest to believe. It's why I think it's why the, the, the lobster story and the, uh, what's happening in Maine is so instructive and useful and interesting to delve into because it's indicative of, as Tyler, you're saying other social dynamics that we're facing as as we're put under stress uh and and i just have to say really quickly here that you know this is man v whale and that's that's what we're deciding can we solve for keeping the whale mm -hmm. uh against this this industry this mm -hmm. fishing industry what what concerns me the most about cl these climate change dynamics is when it becomes man v man and two competing industries or a new you know it's kind of what we're seeing with this new technology although it's 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 just not there yet but you know yeah this this is it's gonna be harder the, the whale is losing this round i hate to say right it's i'm not preordaining the outcome but i'm saying at this moment yeah the numbers are going down uh it's tragic it is a tragic loss, and uh, but it's also, as David neatly put, this is an easy one. There's can, a way out. We can just totally see the solution, and it's turned into. It's really gotten. Yeah. it's gotten nutso. Well, I, you know, the thing that I wonder about David is when are you going to get to do the film that's not the last lobsterman in Connecticut, but the last right whale? I mean. It, you know, with fewer than 100 breeding females, this population is in serious, serious trouble. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to project forward, but uh, it, this will be an American tragedy. This will be talked about for, for a century. If, if this whale population uh, is allowed to be destroyed uh, in the interest of uh, financial gain and an industry that refused to accept the truth and to deal with the, 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 the potential solutions on the table. Uh, boy, this will be a tragedy. Uh, it'll be instructive in the world. Uh, I, I, I just, um, and, and I would say right now, the dynamics of the discussion don't give me much hope. I don't, I hate to be a pessimist, but, um, do you see a way forward here that, that, that you think that this, this can be hammered out and that there could be some progress made? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, um, 
uh, I guess, as maudlin uh, about the future in the sense that uh, I think that there's a glide path to action now. And, you know, I'm hopeful that the new rules will will make a difference and that uh, and that more rules are in the works and that the federal government understands what's uh, what's uh, what's necessary and that the courts hopefully uh, will support that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, you know, it's the, the big wild card is is whether politics yeah. uh, influences policy and um, and the the lobster industry has a good amount of political uh, voice and yep. and power. And so, uh, you know, and there's that important um, uh, electoral vote in Maine that uh, that is is very purple and mm-hmm. up for grabs. And so nobody wants to um, to basically uh upset the the main lobster man just like yeah you know both democrats and republicans have catered to uh the cuban population in south florida yeah. uh, for fear of losing electoral votes in florida so yeah it's a similar similar kind of dynamic well, so much appreciate your perspective, David. And before we wrap up, I really want to touch base on your films. And and uh, for the listeners out there, uh, David's uh, documentary film resume is extensive and really amazing. Uh, five films, Undaunted, uh, Sacred Cod, uh, The Gladesman, which is about the uh, Florida Everglades and, and the Watermen in that area, Lobster Wars, which was an outstanding film about uh, the conflict over lobsters, of course, and entangled his latest film. And David, I understand you have a couple of more in the works. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm working on two new films. One of which um, uh, is a cross section of my uh, previous films, in some ways, about lobster and whales. Uh, and I'm not going to say too much about it, uh, but in short, it's about this very unique. A uh, person who uh, does something that just about uh, nobody else does anymore, um, and he um, he's a, a commercial lobster diver, and uh, he um, goes deep into the water off of the tip of Cape Cod uh, and pulls up bags of lobster um, uh, in a place where great white sharks now uh, are. Um, are uh, a, a big, a big menace and a big threat, and we've already had uh, two deaths um, in the last few years uh, um, from uh, from sharks um, um, and people. And to make a long story short, uh, this film is about um, something that this guy who feared being eaten by a shark uh never imagined possible nobody thought would happen it's a a kind of um uh jonah like story and i'll I'll leave it at that um (laughs) good teaser and uh and i'm and another film i'm working on is about is about climate change uh and particularly sea level rise and uh it's about a um about how my city here, the city of Boston, 
uh, over the last two decades made a decision to spend billions of dollars building an entirely new urban district at sea level along the coast on landfill, arguably in the bullseye of rising sea levels. Uh, And they called it the Innovation District. but uh, mm. a lot of people now call it the Inundation District, and that will be the, the title of, of the film Ouch. that I'm working on. Um, and it's all about the challenges uh, of um, living, you know, in a coastal city, and what uh, and the and the choices we've made, the choices we're going to have to live with, and what the future is likely to bring in the not distant future. Wow. You know, uh, the fourth estate, the, uh, w- the the hallmark of American democracy, the thing that helps make this society run well is, in, is great, effective, investigative journalism. Uh, David, you're one of the people who do that for this country and to cover complex issues and bring it to the public in understandable ways through your re- job as a reporter at the Boston Globe, but also as a filmmaker. It's a great service. It's needed. This is complicated stuff. And having a, a fair arbiter to unravel it is just absolutely essential. And uh, we are always thrilled to talk to you and to learn uh, your perspective on what's happening up there because it's absolutely key and we really appreciate what you do. My, my pleasure. Always great to talk to you guys. And sorry if you can hear my kids uh, screaming in the background. <laughs> it's all allowed is, uh, nowadays. Zoom, Zoom life. The ladies and gentlemen, is David Abel, the award-winning reporter from the Boston Globe documentary, filmmaker, an expert, I would say, on coastal issues. And, and I'm so glad that you're taking on climate change and development, another tremendously complicated issue on the American shoreline. And I can't wait to see the film. And we'd love to have you back on to talk about it when you're ready. Look forward to it. Thank you, guys. Good times around again. Get my car.